This is Entrepreneurs the Playbook, where I give you access each week to the world's greatest athletes and executives about their personal and professional playbook and what has made them champions on and off the field. Yankees win! That contract extension was for $176 million. I'm your host and CEO of Sports One Marketing, David Meltzer. This is Dave Meltzer, CEO of Sports One Marketing, and I am in one of the cooler sets that we're in here for Entrepreneur the Playbook. And I have Tom Bilyeu, the uh, former founder and CEO of Quest Nutrition. Is that the right? Close. I was a uh, co-founder and president. There we go. Warren gets that all the time. Warren Moon, he's co-founder and president, and people are always calling him the founder and CEO. And I'm like, hey, hold on a second. I have a role here. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I am so intrigued uh, by your career. And I'm going to tell you, first, I want to know, here you are, 2010, I believe, and you enter a space that's completely crowded. And I'm a firm believer that the cream rises to the top. But tell me about, you know, there's tons of entrepreneurs through Entrepreneur that, that watch this. What are you thinking that, hey, I'm going to join this, you know, phase or, or big craze, but I'm going to beat everyone. It's kind of Kevin Plank at you know, Under Armour when he started. I'm like, are yeah. you crazy, man? You're going to take on Nike and Adidas? Yeah, no problem. What, what were you thinking? <laughs> I was thinking it was possible, to be honest. And looking at the market, there wasn't a single protein bar that any of us three that founded the company would eat. So we knew there was at least a market of three. And um, we were really coming off of a very traditional entrepreneurial endeavor. We were working in software, didn't love it, didn't have a passion for it. So we really made the move because we wanted to be passionate about what we were doing, believe in what we were doing. And so I grew up in a morbidly obese family. And I, I knew that you're never gonna be able to tell them to eat less and exercise more. And so what was a real solution to that? Well, you could make food that they chose based on taste and it happened to be good for them. And so that's what we were setting out to do was make a protein bar that people would actually want to eat, but it was metabolically advantageous. And so what I always tell people now is there's always room for the best. If you can go in and outplay everybody, you can still win, doesn't matter. I, I agree completely. Now, the interesting thing about that time too, you know, being in the sports world, we watched that space, we had tons of sponsors in that space. There was a lot of misinformation, misdirection, uh, re-engineering. So I always told people in 2010, I said, look, most of the bars that taste great were bad for you. Yeah. In fact, I think a lot of them that, that I was uh, analyzing, I, you're better off eating a Snickers bar in 2010 than most of the protein bars. Just nutritionally, you know, w what was it that was, you know, the, that kind of mis- uh, perception or conception that you guys really, I, at least for me, seeing the brand, people started talking going, hey, this bar actually tastes great and is good for, it actually is good for you. It, what was the combination? Like, wh where did that come from in, in your experience with the big three, you, you guys? So it was exactly what you said. Like, how do you make something that tastes good but actually is good for you? And so holding ourselves accountable to the metabolic realities of what we were asking people to eat. And we had just a wonderful amount of naivete. So we came into it thinking that it would be manufactured by somebody else. We would just be the marketers, be nice and easy. And we went to all the marketers, and they said... This is great, I love what you guys are trying to do. It just can't be made. 
And we had been asking ourselves, like, why hasn't this been done before? It's so obvious. And there's no way that everybody making protein bars wanted to put sugar in them. And so we're like, God, it just doesn't make any sense. And so when we went to the manufacturers and they said, look, the equipment has been developed over the last 50, 60 years to work with liquid sugar. Once you take liquid sugar out, it just doesn't go through the machinery. So basically we had to realize that if we were gonna do this, and because we said we're either gonna do it right, meaning it's metabolically real, or we're just not gonna do it. So we had to cross a road and become our own manufacturer, engineer our own equipment, or just say it's not for us. And so we decided to become our own manufacturer. You actually changed the way you look at things and the things you looked at changed. Now, looking at that, you are a philosopher. I've done a lot of due diligence on you. Very generous. But it is, it is. You have certain philosophies that not only do you carry out individually, but you created a collective belief within your organization. Um, And I know I've read, I think there's like 25 different pillars that I was reading about. One I want to ask you about, I, I, I think very simply I teach people, if you want to really be successful, a simple thing is a do it now strategy. And I've, I've never seen that before anywhere until I was you know, doing some due diligence on you. My do it now strategy is a little different. I say, if you don't do something now, so anything that comes to me, I said, if I can do it now, then if I do it now, it saves me at least half the time. Mm. And then statistically, I'll be more successful. The minute I don't do it, I have to put it somewhere and then go back to it. And so I always, and it's kind of uh, not my ADD, but it's rude of me during meetings. People will freak out because I'm like, hold on a second and I'll call, right? <laughs> right? Or someone will tell me, hey, can you make this introduction? And I'll say, hold on a second. And I'll email that introduction because you know how much time it takes if I forget to do that or I don't do that. What's your do it now strategy? Yeah, I mean, you just explained it so well. Creating momentum is the only thing that matters. And the reason I think that most people fail, it's not even that they don't have a good idea or that they're not smart enough, it's that they don't know how to create momentum. And creating momentum is born of little things like that. Like, hey, we're in a meeting and it would be really advantageous to ask this person a question, whatever, I'm gonna do it right now. And instead of asking yourself like, oh, can we, like, let's be fast, let's do it tomorrow, you start saying, why wouldn't we do this right now? And just making every decision you can to generate momentum. And I, that often freaks people out that are really conservative, that wanna make sure they're safe and protected. And have we looked at the downside and where this could go wrong? And I always tell people, look, I want the problem where I'm in my bedroom with the blankets over my head crying because I lost my $100 million deal. But the problem is you're way more likely to never have a $100 million deal than you are to lose, lose it. So what I want people to be focused on is generate so much momentum that you have those $100 million deals to worry about rather than worrying about it before you have the deal. Right. And it's almost a detachment, right? Detachment from the outcome. People get confused. We're both high, highly actualizing, motivated people that probably have great objectives in life. But reading about you, you've been able to detach yourself from an outcome. You have this philosophy of, I call it the consistent, everyday, persistent, without quit, enjoyment of the pursuit of your potential. So as I read down all your stuff, mm. I said, wow, you know, Tom really gets it because he's consistently, persistently enjoying the pursuit of his potential. And all those different words I know you have philosophies about. What, what background is it? Did you read something? Did you, were you a philosophy major? Where did this come from? 
It was born out of misery is the honest answer. So I grew up lazy. I grew up not showing any signs of potential. When I left for college, truly, when I left for college, my own mother quietly assumed I was going to fail. She didn't say anything. She was always my biggest cheerleader. Yeah. But when I finally succeeded and she had just always been trying to get me home and I thought you were the one that like kicked me out and all but forced me to go to school out of state. Like, why'd you do that if you just wanted me to come back? And she said, I always thought you were going to fail. And I just didn't want you to ask, like, what if? What if I would tried to go after my dreams? And so that, like, that is where I started. And so for me, I had to check everything. My beliefs, my behaviors, my actions had to be checked against. I want to achieve this, but am I actually doing what I need to do to achieve that? And so the moment of crisis came for me when um, I had just... I'd been hired as a copywriter by the guys who would later become my partners in Quest. But they had hired me first as a copywriter at a technology company. And they said, don't think of yourself as a copywriter. You can have any job you want in the company. You just have to become the right person for the job, which means you have to get good. And we were arguing about something because they're really smart, way smarter than me, farther ahead in their entrepreneurial journey than me. And I was just so tired of being wrong and so tired of feeling badly about myself that I was arguing for an idea, even though I knew it was wrong. I was arguing for it because it was mine. And I end up convincing them. And so now I have a moment of crisis where I'm like, I tell people I want to be rich, but yet I just did something that I know is bad for the company. So which is it? And I will say in that moment, I was very honest with myself. And I said, look, if you just want to feel good about yourself, which is how you're acting, right? That you don't care about your goal. You just want to feel good about yourself in the moment. Feel smart, um, feel worthy, talented, all that, right? Then if that's what you want, quit this job immediately because these guys make you feel stupid every single day. And then just go do like king of remedial job stuff. Go in a small pond, be a big fish. Or if you actually want your goal, then you need to find a way to rethink about all of this. And I realized I needed to feel good about myself, but I wanted to pursue my goals. And so I flipped what I built my self-esteem around to something that I didn't have these words at that time, but Nassim Taleb wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. And he said, something that's tough or resilient is still defined by its breaking point, whereas something that's anti-fragile, the more you attack it, the stronger it gets. And so what kind of persona, identity, and ego could I build around something that was anti-fragile? And the only thing I could come up with was being a learner and being willing to admit when I was wrong. Because I was wrong so much more often than I was right, if I could take pride in that and actually be excited to say, hey, I know I was just arguing against you 30 seconds ago, but you've actually convinced me. I'm totally wrong. I'm now way behind your idea and let's go. And then just voraciously learning, 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 learning. So to your, your direct question about did I read something, I read a lot of some things. And then being an entrepreneur, everything's on the line. And there's no room for BS, right? Like if, if you're wrong and you keep going down that path, you lose your house, you lose your car, like you lose faith in yourself. Like there's really a lot riding. So you just want the right answer. And so being in that environment was just super important to me. And I mean, going back to sports, right? You're either winning or you're losing. And being an entrepreneur is the same way. Yeah, no doubt. And you are, I think, an expert of the ego. You know, after listening to you and also reading about you, you know, you have a real firm... Uh, understanding of the needs of the ego. You have no need to be right, no need to be offended, no need to be superior, inferior, separate, from what I've read. And that fragile ego, you're almost, you know, they talk about the universe, what you resist persists. That, that's what I think of when I think of Tom Bilyeu, right? Like, the more that you're going to resist me, the more I'm going to persist. And I get stronger and stronger as that goes on. But you also have a quality of illumination. Uh, and it was something different. I did lose everything 10 years ago, uh, you know, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a choice at that time. Do I 
you know, because if somebody would have told me that I'd sit on camera all the time or on stage and tell people that I lost so much money, I own a golf course, a ski mountain, tons of properties, I lost it all, and have to tell, let alone my mom, my whole family, and then the whole public that I lost and went bankrupt. That it would have, I almost would have thought that I would have probably maybe ended it all in shame or just ran away and hid in Mexico, surfed Cabo for the rest of my life or something. But this idea that you... You just have it. It's illumination. I, you know what? I'm right all the time. And I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> because if I'm wrong and I learn from it, then I become right. right. But I illuminate that to people. And it actually has made them feel good about themselves. That, wow, this is okay. I can forgive myself. Where and when did this um, idea of illumination that you really portray so well that you're like, hey, I'm very successful, but I'm human? You know, it's interesting. People have... I've gotten a lot of credit for being humble. And I, the first time it was said, I, I was like so taken aback and confused. And honestly, it's driven from anxiety. So when I try to act cool or act smart or act like I know something that I don't, I get anxious. And that feeling is so unpleasant <laughs> that I just learned that if I don't know, to click over into, I'm a learner, so I just wanna learn this and grow and get better anyway. So don't pretend like I know something. And one of my superpowers is I've never been afraid to look stupid. I'm just not afraid to be embarrassed. And the reason I'm not afraid to be embarrassed is because I had a realization a very long time ago not to judge myself through the lens of a moment. So saying that I'm a loser because I had all this um, property and wealth and all that and it's gone, that's to judge yourself through the lens of a moment. But if you take the lens of a lifetime and you say, okay, but everything I'm learning through this, through the successes, now through the failure, I know that I'm gonna come out the other side and be stronger and wiser for it, which means that I've got more opportunity for success on this side. So I just knew, okay, never in any one moment, don't ever worry about how you look. Because if you don't, if you're willing to look stupid, if you're willing to admit you don't know, if you're willing to open yourself up to people, then you really will collect that information. You really will get stronger over time. And so it, it comes from anxiety and deep arrogance. So the, the irony of being- radical humility. <laughs> right? The irony of people telling me that I'm, I'm radically um, you, humble because of that, it, it's, it really is coming out of, I fully understand on a long enough timeline, I'm going to win. So all these people that are laughing at me, I, A, I have an 80-20 rule. So I spend 80% of my time thinking about the beautiful things in my life, the things I'm grateful for, the things I'm trying to create that will be wonderful and touch people and all that. And I spend 20% of my time in fuck you. Right. Like, I'm going to win. I'm going to grind harder. I'm going to outwork you. I will bury you with success. And that the greatest revenge is unmitigated success, right? So 20%, only 20%, yeah. so I don't want to get lost to the darkness. But there, there is real power in that. So you put all of that together, and I'm, I just admit what I don't know, which is far more than I do know. Which is the fastest vibrating thing on earth is the truth. And I love the snapshot philosophy of any given moment because it also uh, is tied into how you feel about other people. And meaning that, uh, you know, I recently turned 50 myself and I, was, I have 50 birthday parties to raise money for a leadership and empowerment center. But at my first party, I made a huge mistake. I combined my professional community with my family and, and old friends that have known me from elementary school. So it was really interesting because at first I had this need to be offended because I had some uncles who their snapshot, because of their experience with me, was from 15 to 21. And so they're sitting at tables with some executives and people that know me as human, Sports Humanitarian of the Year and Philanthropic Dave, and his comment is, and fair enough, was, 
I wonder how much money he's making raising this money, <laughs> right? Because that's his perception, right. but that's his snapshot. And it took me a second to forgive myself and illuminate the fact that, hey, that's who I was when I was 17 to 21, right. but I'm 50 now. And do I have the energy to turn those people, like you said, those other people out there that are judging you, putting conditions on you, uh, which leads me to the question. I love that you're utopic in thinking, but reality, realistic in practice. You're almost a Napoleon Hill in some sorts. You'll talk about, you know, oh, there's, you know, limitless what you believe you can achieve, limitless. Absolutely, that's not true, right? <laughs> but you should think that because it creates momentum and empowerment right. for you. Tell me a little bit about how you deal with the conflict between what I consider your philosophy of utopic thought and energy of, hey, I can do anything, but you then always take a step back. As I was reading about you, it says, yeah, that's a great way to think, but the reality is you should just think that way and hope that you're close. I see that a lot in your philosophy. Yeah, I, I think that the number one thing that stops most people is their own mind. So whatever it is that they're capable of, let's say it's grossly limited compared to what they want to do. So if that's up here, they're gross limitations. They stop performing here because their belief system tells them that that's all they can accomplish. So even though they were so far from their limits, they're so focused on the fact that they have limits that they stop well below it. So if you know a guy named David Goggins, ultra endurance athlete, yep. absolutely one of the most incredible human beings I've ever met, <laughs> uh, former Navy SEAL, he said, when you're at your breaking point where you don't think you could possibly do anything else, I mean, you are spent to the core of your being, he said you're 40% of what you're really capable of. And he's just proven that. So the guy ran right. ultra endurance marathons, 125 mile plus, with a hole in his heart the size of a poker chip. So this guy gets to say, you've got more in you. Like he, he gets that pass. So I just totally buy into that. Now, there are limits. And the part of the reason that I really go out of my way to remind people, sure, there are limits. I just don't want to get lost in the stupid argument about like the, you know, where is the limit? It, it's so irrelevant. And the fact that you're arguing that tells me you will never accomplish anything because you want your argue for your limitations and they become yours, right? So they're fighting so hard for somebody else to say, you're right, man. It's okay. You haven't done what you wanted with your life because you have limits. And my whole thing is, look, whatever life you want to live, I don't care. Like if it's big or it's small, it's totally irrelevant to me. Whatever makes you happy and fulfilled, I'm a fan of. But an empowering way to think is as if you have no limits. Let your limits surprise you. Be taken by surprise by failure because you're going as if you can't lose. Now that doesn't mean that you're not doing everything you can to ensure your success, but you're, you're going at it like you're going to succeed because then you don't have any mental barriers in your way. Yeah, when I think about you, I think about vibration, right? The truth vibrates the fastest but there's varying degrees of vibration. I tell people all the time as they're trying to reconcile what you're talking about is that yes, the truth vibrates the fastest, but we live at this vibration. Meaning, you know, I, I read all types of manifestation books. I've written one and I believe you truly can manifest anything you desire. But the truth is if you could vibrate that fast to manifest the publisher's clearing house or Ferrari driving up in your driveway by sitting here and pretending like the movie, The Secret. Well, if you're vibrating that fast, which is so closest to the truth, a gamma speed, you wouldn't want to be at this vibration. So there is this, you know, transcendence of Okay, the truth vibrates the fastest. How close or the idea which you talk about potential can you become? Where do you now, understanding your limitations at this vibration, where do you see your potential in the next 10 years? 
Well, so I, this is where my belief system kicks in and I say, well, okay, realistically, what can I accomplish in 10 years? I think it's a lot. So our goal with the company Impact Theory is to build a studio that rivals Disney, but I need a similar timeline. So I just think, okay, where will I be at 10 years on that timeline? So at 10 years on the timeline, I think that one, just through the social content, I'll be touching millions of lives. Um, and that's incredibly meaningful to me. But the real thing that we'll be generating is narrative content that I think will have a generational impact on belief systems at a cultural level. So said in a more simple way, if I'm looking at my morbidly obese family and I say, okay, really, what do I have to do to get them healthy so that they'll live longer? And the answer is make food they choose based on taste. Okay, that's how you address health. What's that same version of getting people to have an empowering belief system that will let them stop tripping themselves up? So the metaphor I use is pulling someone out of the matrix, right? So yeah. matrix is just a metaphor for you create these belief systems and they convince you that certain things are real that aren't necessarily real. And so I think that we'll be putting out comic books that are doing very well. I think within 10 years, we would have a very robust library, call it somewhere between 30 and 50. Um, pieces of intellectual property that we'll be shopping to TV and film. Uh, I think by the 10 year mark, we've created things, um, multiple TV shows, multiple films, hopefully one or two that have had real cultural impact. Um, we won't be at Disney's level, not by a long stretch. That's like a 70 year time horizon. So I'm very realistic in terms of how much I'll be able to accomplish um, in that sense. But like even that I know is fraught with so many landmines that to project out even 10 years, especially in the space as volatile as media. But it, what it hopefully highlights is how I think about the real mission in my life, which is pulling people out of the matrix. And right now, I believe the path to that is traditional narrative content married to social content um, and just helping people think in a new <laughs> way, right? So I think we'll be well down that path uh, with a thriving company. You, are, you, you nailed it, and I hope people heard that, right? This idea of you know, taking the traditional media and transcending it to digital. You, you need both, and you know, we're dealing with content. I think there's a huge opportunity today that allows the Tom Billiews and the Dave Meltzers of the world to compete with Disney. Right? You know, we're, we're able to have a top five podcast that beats out an ESPN podcast. You know, even three years ago, you know, the, the Gary V's, the Dave Meltzer's, the Portnoy's, the Tom Billiews, we, we weren't able to provide content that could have that kind of impact or reach. And now because we understand, you know, the traditional side of things, in fact, we put, you know, this podcast is on TV, which probably gets the least amount of attention, but it actually, because it's on TV, has more credibility, mm -hmm. which gave it three times the power on iTunes which was really interesting. And I love the fact that you're taking this approach to you know, transcend time. Disney's the icon you know, for success in media. And the, what I see in Disney is he was someone that has very similar belief stars that he believed and, and he failed you know, early. And I always joke around when he went bankrupt, because I went bankrupt, I had to go home to my wife and say, okay, you know, what am I going to do? And, you know, obviously she wasn't happy, but I could imagine my answer being, well, I think I'm going to create a kingdom about a mouse. Everything's going to be fine. Right. Right. Yeah. That wasn't going to fly. Mine was more like I'm going to work for TELUS and uh, make some money. And, you know, I was blessed to meet Lee Steinberg and run that sports agency. What's been the biggest challenge for you, you know, in growing not only your first business, but now you're, you're going to be a media mogul. What's the biggest challenge you face? 
Well, there's really two huge challenges anybody's going to face. Can you accurately identify the path you're going to have to go down to build something big, right? So with Quest, having to figure out how we manufacture, it was a huge undertaking that ended up with 1,400 employees, hundreds of thousands of square feet, millions of dollars of equipment. I mean, it was, it was a massive undertaking. With Impact Theory, it's, okay, how do you, so any creative endeavor, there's so much failure. How do you fail in the cheap? Comic books. How do you get good at comic books? Building, getting the people around you that can teach you about it so you avoid obvious mistakes. But there's monopolistic distribution um, practices in the comics industry. It's ruled by two companies that don't care if they make money because they're making all their money on film and TV, right? So it's, can you actually figure that business puzzle out? And do you love solving those kinds of puzzles enough that you're gonna see that through, knowing that you're gonna have to iterate and change and all of that. And then the other side is people. And so I've been now through the game of scaling a company from tiny to massive. And everything changes in that journey. And I am beyond grateful for getting a lesson that so few entrepreneurs ever get to do, which was taking our company from not existing to being valued at over a billion dollars and it was the same team. And so growing through that and seeing how it impacts culture and seeing how it impacts hiring and seeing how it impacts training and all of that stuff, like that was, that was a hard lesson to learn and I made just an unbelievable amount of mistakes. And going back to humility, I've often told people, humility finds me every day because I am <laughs> making mistakes all the time. Oh, yeah. So if you're honest about those, you're willing to learn from those and tell other people so they can learn from it, uh, not try to hide it, not try to create a persona, but really just be who you are, then extraordinary things happen. So those are the two big ones. Like, do you, can you get enough people excited about your vision, moving in the same direction, and is your vision actually right? Right, a direct path to revenue, right? There's a million great ideas, but making money from it's a whole different scene. No question. Last question, and most important to me, is when it's all said and done, Tom, what legacy would you like to leave? That's interesting. I don't think about legacy. So I'm a, I'm a big believer that while you're here, you're here. And when you're gone, that's it. Nice. So I, I want the people around me to get something amazing out of my presence now. I want to enjoy what I'm doing now. So even though I have what most people would consider an absurdly long-range timeline of what I'm trying to build towards, I think about the process. And so I, I have lived the truth that the struggle is guaranteed, the success is not. So you better enjoy the struggle, you better enjoy what you're doing in the moment. And so I'm as impacted by, this literally just happened the other day, I was walking in a casino in Vegas and a 50 plus year old guy caught my eye and he beelines over to me and his eyes well up and he starts to cry and he was like, I've gotta tell you, I was just going through a divorce and you helped me through it. And I was like, I don't need more than that. You know what I mean? Right, like right. I get it. that those kinds of moments are so incredibly meaningful. Like I didn't know this guy. I didn't even know he existed. And yet, by putting something out into the world that I really believe in that I've worked my ass off to understand so that I could transmit it to other people so they could use it in their lives and see that it's actually working. It's like, okay, the process part for what I'm doing is on lock. Like it's working. Beautiful things are happening in my life. The kind of impact that I'm having. So I'm loving right now. Now, I think most people would look at that and go, and you're also leaving an amazing legacy, and that's great, and so I love that, but I want people to understand, don't always live for a future thing. Like, if you design it right, there's no incongruity between building a beautiful life right now today that's fulfilling, because to me, fulfillment necessarily requires service to other people, as well as yourself, doing amazing stuff for yourself, but living in service of other people is, humans are a social animal. We're just neurologically rewarded for that. So 
if you build that life that you're going to love and be fulfilled by in the moment, it will be an amazing legacy by accident. No doubt about it. I have never met a better poster child for the do it now strategy. You've taken, taken it not only to today, but your actual legacy is doing it now, which there is always a legacy. And I think focusing on the present to create the future is a really great legacy to leave. And it's been an extraordinary experience being here with you. And I'm hoping you and I can do more things together because uh, I am one of those guys who I, I watch you, I study you, I, I utilize your humility and your strategies and philosophies to help my success, especially on the media side. So I want to congratulate you, you and man. appreciate, appreciate you being cool. on the show. Well, this is uh, Dave Meltzer with Tom Bilyeu with Entrepreneur The Playbook. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when we feature another story on how a sports icon went from the playing field to the boardroom.